VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati. This week, high winds, high seas, and the high price of paperwork. Wind power has seen explosive growth over the past couple of decades. What was once a fledgling industry with a few scattered turbines is now more than 7% of global electricity supply, up from merely 2% in 2010. Just last week, the UK set its new wind energy record, with two-thirds of the country's electricity coming from wind at one point. But if the world is to achieve net zero by 2050, we're going to need a lot more wind turbines, both on land, but more importantly, out at sea. One company building that future is Orsted, the world's largest developer of offshore wind power. Formerly known as Danish Oil and Natural Gas, or DONG, the company has undergone a remarkable transition. A little more than a decade ago, it produced more than 85% of its electricity from fossil fuels. Now, almost all of that comes from wind power. It's a story of success, the kind of story we need more of, but it's one that could very well have not happened. Orsted has become a case study of how to transform a fossil fuel company for the clean energy era. But it's actually not just a story of well-timed forward thinking but also of a lot of government intervention and many happy accidents. Despite all the success of Orsted, CEO Mads Nipper told us that the wind industry is in a strange position. There's clearly growing demand for clean energy as the world overcomes its addiction to fossil fuels, but the industry is struggling to make a decent profit as it reckons with permitting problems, supply chain issues and increased competition. Until government buyers will realize that the price will have to be more realistic, which will still be significantly cheaper than any fossil fuel, there will be a risk that things will slow down and even some projects potentially not built. This week on Zero, Mad Snipper joins us to tell the real story of his company's transformation, the challenges Orsted is facing and the impact of fossil fuel companies now trying to get in on the wind game. Welcome to the show, Mads. Thank you so much. Now, Orsted is known today in the world as a giant in offshore wind. Mm. It wasn't that very long ago. It was called Dong, mm. which stood for Danish Oil and Natural Gas. What happened? <laughs> okay, brilliant question and a very important question. Because Dong was born as a merger of a number of smaller Danish energy utilities and the oil and gas business essentially in Denmark. And what, what happened was that after a few years or some years of successful operation, the company found itself in an in increasing sort of financial challenged outlook. And at the same time, the then management and board said, the path we are on is not future proof. Danish businesses and many businesses, successful businesses generally have a tendency to say, is the business we are running, is that fundamentally future proof if we think long term? And already then, 
This was essentially born with strength back in 2008. Already then, it was painfully obvious that oil and gas and fossil fuels in general is not future proof. So that started with a vision of going from, at that time, 15% renewables and 85% fossil fuel generation. And the then CEO had a vision to say, let's turn it around and say 85% renewables and 15% fossil by 2040. And then the rest of history. So we exceeded that target actually more than 20 years ahead of uh, the, the first ambition. So by 2020, you were 85% renewables. And we 15%. were 90% renewable. Wonderful. Now, you also rebranded to Orsted at some point right. in the middle. Why the change? Well, Danish uh, oil and natural gas obviously is not a good name if you're the world's undisputed offshore wind leader. So at the time, it was said, we need to ensure that we find a name that not only is different than Dong, but is something that signals the future. And Hans Christian Orsted was actually the man who discovered electromagnetism. By the way, which fewer people know, he was also the one who discovered alum aluminium uh, and invented more than 2,000 words in the Danish language. So a, a brilliant mind, but the contribution to inventing electromagnetism, which obviously is the foundation for so many things in society today, was why we picked that name. In terms of Orsted getting a rebrand, it also was the moment where you went from uh, being fully publicly owned yes. by the Danish state to majority owned by Danish state and yes. then you listed on the stock exchange. Yes. And for a while you were twice, thrice the size of BP. Yeah, I don't think we were twice the side quite, but we had a larger market cap than BP. And I think that was a recognition from investors that the future is renewables. And no doubt that we need all possible renewable technologies, ideally offshore wind, onshore wind, solar, different storage solutions, and who knows, maybe much better future-proofed uh, nuclear technologies when we get 10, 20 years further ahead. We need everything to fundamentally turn around the world's energy system. But investors saw that if a company like Orsted can make a complete transformation from being one of Europe's most fossil fuel intensive utilities to being one of the strongest and in offshore, the very strongest company in 10 years, there must be an almost limitless potential. Now, I'm going to take a pin and prick a hole in the story because I'm going to give a little bit more context Please as to do. how Orsted happened. And you should correct me if I'm wrong. The story of Orsted isn't as simple as Mads is making out. To understand how Orsted grew into one of the world's largest wind developers, you need to go back to the formation of Dong, Danish oil and natural gas. In 1973, there was the OPEC oil crisis, and Denmark was among the worst hit in Europe. That forced the government to pause and come up with a strategy. It combined several Danish oil and gas companies to create Dong, and that entity became the state's route to produce oil and gas from the North Sea that it had recently found. Dong was just one of many state-owned enterprises crucial to ensuring Denmark's energy security well into the 90s. However, by that time, the European Union started implementing rules to promote more competition in the energy market. This put the Danish government in a tricky position, as they were worried that Dong might not be able to compete with the likes of Germany's RWE or Sweden's Vattenfall. So the Danish state decided to create a national energy champion and told Dong to go out and start buying power plants. Most of the power plants that existed at the time, if they were not running on gas, were running on coal. And so by the late 2000s, Dong became Dong Energy. It had oil, 
and gas and coal. And accidentally, it had also acquired some offshore wind turbines as part of the utility companies it had bought. And then 2009 was when the Copenhagen Climate Summit happened. And so the government said, Dong Energy, you cannot hold on to coal. Dong Energy said, yes, we realize the future is not coal. And they turned around and they said, oh, but we have these offshore wind turbines. Could we make something of it? Did I get anything wrong? Yeah, you you got uh, a, you did a very good piece of research, <laughs> uh, and and almost everything you say is factually uh, correct. I will say though, the really important part of this is when is the transformation made from being essentially a utility and an oil and gas company and into a fully renewables company. That was not something that the government pushed in connection with COP15, which happened in 2009. That was something that happened essentially as part of a vision from the company CEO and the company management. So that is that is the main difference. And then the other really important thing was that Dong at the time also really forcefully wanted to convert the coal-fired power plants to being fired on the sustainable biomass, which obviously, I mean, there are still uh, opponents to biomass, but what everybody at least can agree is that it is better than coal. So those are the two nuances. And then the story from 2008, when that vision was launched, up until 2012, which was essentially when the company said, now we make that choice. Now we get in capital from, in this case, Goldman Sachs, and later on a listing, which was what gave the financial opportunity to really accelerate offshore wind. Right. So you're right. We got those offshore wind turbines from what, by the way, was the world's first offshore wind farm, Vinnebu, which is now decommissioned. We got that, you could say, by accident. But it gave an inspiration for something where the choice into one key technology and making a wholehearted bet on that was something that was really transformational. And we can now just say Orsted has become the offshore wind giant. And that's where the story ends, happily ever after. Yeah. But it's not the case. That is not the case. So right now, there are some serious challenges, uh, unexpected as they may be. Europe is going through an energy crisis. Uh, It would desperately, desperately want to get away from gas and coal. And yet, wind power companies, not just developers, but also suppliers of wind turbines, are getting hammered in the market. Oil and gas giants are making tons and tons of profits. Why is that happening? Shouldn't this be the moment where renewable energy really shines? Yeah, the great companies and great societies in the world are those that keep a long-term view and continue to do what is fundamentally right when things are difficult. And things are difficult on a super tragic background with the unacceptable war in Ukraine, it has become very obvious that we need to deliberate ourselves from energy imports from that part of the world. And at the same time, we obviously need to sustain momentum on fighting climate change. So in many ways, you could say, is there a strong sentiment now for oil and gas companies to make lots of money because energy prices have spiked up and it doesn't cost any more for the oil companies to take up more oil and gas from the underground? Of course, that is attractive to investors because they make lots and lots of money and the share prices go up. That's how, at least, those are some of the dimensions of how capitalism works. I have no concerns that if we, and here I mean both governments and the renewables industry, if we continue to do the right thing, 
This is a temporary setback only. And if you look at only what has happened in the last few months, we have seen renewables ambition only go one way, and that is up. We've seen the North Sea Declaration with the North Sea states upping offshore ambitions, the Baltic Declaration. Right now, the world has an ambition of an offshore alone for 380 gigawatts of capacity by 2030 and 2,000 gigawatts, which is more than twice of, of the U.S. total energy consumption by 2050. So I am 100% convinced that momentum will sustain. But yes, we have setbacks. We have setbacks in terms of permitting process being too slow. We have setbacks in terms of cost of capital going up. We have setbacks in terms of oil companies obviously being able to, to invest truckloads of cash, which in some ways is good because they also invest in renewables projects, uh, at least some of them. So it's a, it's a mixed bag of, bag of good and bad, but I can promise you that both we and other players in this industry are not going to take our eyes off the ball of the target that we need to get to. I think the arguments on the long term you make are pretty reasonable. Onshore wind has been the cheapest source of power in Europe for a long time now already. And offshore wind prices have been falling and they will continue to fall for some time. But the short term matters a lot yes. because it empowers companies like oil and gas companies to be able to eat your lunch. Mm. They will go and buy up seabed rights, which they have done in the UK, which has great offshore wind ambition. Mm. How are you dealing with that kind of competition? Well, first and foremost, I think it's super important that any dollar or euro that goes into renewable power instead of fossil fuels is a good thing. From an Austin-specific point of view, of course, it's annoying because if there is... In some cases, what I call irrational competition with somebody who just wants the gigawatts and really don't care about the returns, ultimately, that risks stopping the flow of capital to renewable energy because investors, if there is no financial return, it becomes financially unsustainable. And no matter how much gas oil and gas companies will have, then eventually that momentum will discontinue. It is super important that our industry not just for the sake of our investors and for our own companies, but for the sake of the momentum of renewable energy, that we continue to actually keep financial discipline to ensure that there is at least an acceptable financial return. But I am also hearing that some of the oil companies are starting to signal now that it's really important that there is a return on these. Examples would be Equinor from Norway. BP have recently said the same. So I, I think there are glimmers of hope that we will uh, have an industry that is also very sort of mindful about the necessity to continue to generate returns. I don't say that because Orsted is afraid of competition. I'm saying this because we are a company with a vision of a world that runs entirely on green energy. And the lack of capital flowing to that transformation is the single biggest risk we have. That's interesting. We interviewed the CEO of Vestas. They make wind turbines. They supply some of them to you. They some supply many to others. And his response was, we have no concerns with capital. Investors want to put the money in. European Union is committing lots of money. Our main challenge is permitting problems that governments are not allowing wind turbines and wind farms to be built where they need to go. And the race to the bottom, where countries are competing to advertise how cheap renewables have become, but in the process, making the small profit margins, or maybe large profit margins, that wind companies make, 
shrink them further and make them less viable. That, but Henrik and I are saying exactly the same thing. We are just saying it in different ways. Henrik is the CEO of Vestas. Exactly. I fully agree on the permitting point. It actually takes longer to get a plot of seabed permitted than it does to build the entire farm. That is completely unacceptable. How much time does it take to permit and how much time does it take it to can, build? It can take, worst case, seven to 10 years to get it permitted. In many cases, shorter, but typically takes two to three years to build. And just talk us through the process of permitting. What no, is it that get, they have to, yeah. what are the things that they have to do? They, they have to get environmental permits. There needs to be stakeholders. So everything from birds to fish, biodiversity, which by the way is super important, fishermen, communities, uh, local summer house owners, seabed, uh, ge geological investigations, and all of that needs and to so be done. And so they send out people to count the fish and count the birds and talk to the people who may see these winter All kinds of hearings, all of that. But that's important. It right? is important. But the worst thing is that if that was done efficiently, it could be done in a year. In some cases, for example, in the US, we are still struggling with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management getting enough resources to keep momentum. In other places, it's an endless bureaucracy where maybe sometimes tens or twenties of different government bodies need to be involved and they don't coordinate. Sometimes an application can lie two months on a desk and not get onto the next one. There are so many practical dimensions. Yeah, we've seen uh, the amount of paperwork that yes. needs to be done to get an offshore yes. uh, wind permit or even onshore wind permit. Yes. And it looks like half a ton of yes. paper. Yes. I'm not joking. No. I mean, one of the applications we've done, there has been 4,300 pages. I know that the, there will be a report that will say yes. what needs to be done, but what are you asking of government? I'm asking that whatever the key challenge is, some places resources, some places bureaucracy, some places just excessive caretaking of stakeholder concerns. Whatever the challenge is in a specific country, because it's different, that the political will, because the political will is there, that that is transformed into real action and say, whatever happens, come hell and high water, it, it should never take more than one year and just task somebody to get it done. That's what I would do. If permitting is one problem the industry faces, then capital is another. What that means and why it's an issue after the break. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands, but they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. Mads and I talked a lot about the pressure the wind industry is facing. 
One of them is the cost of capital, which simply put is the price you pay to borrow money from banks or investors. And that matters a lot because most large businesses run on borrowed money and not their own capital. The other pressure comes from the industry selling itself as one of the cheapest forms of energy you can buy, agreeing to sell power at fixed prices for decades. In doing so, the industry has created a trap for itself. As interest rates rise and supply chains are squeezed, raising the cost of the roughly 8,000 pieces that go into a turbine, the industry's profits are also squeezed, threatening the financial viability of wind developments. I asked Mads how this was affecting Orsted and suppliers like Danish wind turbine maker Vestas, run by CEO Henrik Andersen. Let's come to the capital. Capital, exactly. Capital, the capital point. Henrik says it's a race to the bottom. And I, I say eventually the capital will dry out because Henrik is right that it is a race to the bottom. There is very, very little realization that right now inflation on many components, all the way from wind turbines to steel, to copper, to vessel rentals, to fuels, to, to drive the ships and so on. All of that is exploding in inflation, actually more than general inflation. And at the same time, in many cases, the financial return above cost of capital on offshore wind is in many cases one, two, in a really good project, 3%. Just bear in mind, the last three months, cost of capital has, has gone up by two to 3%. That puts a huge pressure on the returns. And if states around the world say, energy prices can only go down, then it will be a race to the bottom. And add to that, if there are still irrational behavior from some companies to say, we will bid whatever it takes. If we are pressured as a developer, what will we do? We'll put huge pressure on Vestas and other turbine suppliers, such as Siemens Gamesa or, or, or General Electric. They already lose money. So that will mean that the health of the industry will be put under further pressure. It's such a strange thing, though. I mean... An industry that's so much in demand is producing clean power that the world needs, is doing it at scale in tens of countries around the world, is being hit by its own success. Mm. And if the numbers you're talking about are right, could collapse. See, I'm fundamentally, and I'm what I call myself a pragmatic optimist. This industry, offshore and renewables in general, is, is probably the fastest growing industry anywhere in the world. A glimmer of hope, which is a big glimmer of hope, is that an onshore, which has a much shorter cycle from when you approve it and when you build it and when you sell the power, we see that the price that's being paid for the power moves completely in tandem with inflation because the corporate off-takers of power, utility off-takers of the power, they know that the power has to have realistic prices. And by the way, it's a power price that is less than a fifth of the current power price. So it's still a bargain to get tens of years of what is comparatively to, to right now, super cheap power. Offshore, right now, we have governments who have talked themselves into a narrative. It can only go down. Countries need to look at the societal benefits. So how many jobs are created? Are the export industries created? Do we have companies invested in biodiversity so we see better ocean biodiversity? Do we ensure that there is social justice in the transformation? If that starts to become a criteria rather than only putting pressure on price, that is a time when this industry will, will really start to not only grow, because it will grow, but grow in a healthy way. But we should also just think about economics because economics drives a lot of the markets. 
you're talking about not going to the race to the bottom on absolute power prices, but the relative, which is the difference between offshore mm. and gas or coal is growing. And yes. so because gas and coal are currently expensive, yes. even though wind power prices are going up a little bit yes. more because of inflation, yes. because uh, of supply chain issues, the delta, the difference between those prices has only grown. That should make offshore more attractive. That, that's my very point. That's my very point, is that it, if there was rational behavior from, from all relevant governments, they would say that since the fossil fuel prices of energy have only gone up, then it is actually a smart thing to accept that the prices on offshore and onshore will go up comparatively. And until, and I'm convinced that will happen, until government buyers will realize that the price will have to be more realistic, which will still be significantly cheaper than any, any fossil fuel, there will be a risk that things will slow down and even some projects potentially not built. We saw some colleagues in the US going out and saying, we are not sure we can build these projects. So that is the risk of a slowdown, but is the growth potential of offshore, is that going to be realized uh, on the long term? Absolutely. Well, you didn't bring up one risk factor, which is that big oil companies are coming into the space and they have very deep pockets. How are you going to deal with those companies being okay, not making money on offshore for a while and maybe eating into your share? But see, that is where we have the privilege of having more than 50 gigawatts of pipeline. We, we recently said no to, to participate in a Taiwanese auction, even though we are the biggest, by far the biggest developer there, because we couldn't make a good project there. And the, a market leader has many responsibilities. And one of them is to also say no when things are not sustainable. And I don't want to sound arrogant, but having built close to 30 utility scale offshore wind farms, we know better than anybody else what is realistic economies and not. So when we say no, the industry can trust that that is what's realistic. Are you worried that having oil companies come in will slow down your growth, will eat up into your pipeline? The short answer is, is no. Because we, we believe there are many opportunities. I mean, for example, in the UK, we will build the uh, Horn C3, which is the world's largest offshore property with 2.8 gigawatts. We still have Horn C4. We got a, a gigawatt uh, in, in Scotland. So even there, there's ample opportunity. Worth noting that when the UK held its recent seabed rights auction for offshore wind, more than half the bids were won by oil and gas companies, specifically BP and Total. Could there be a scenario where some countries turn out to be less attractive than they usually happen? Yes, that could happen. I won't point to anything specific, but if that happens, the great thing is that all over the world, we're seeing offshore being really, really wanted to grow. So if, if some of those countries do not get it, or if the competition means that there are no good projects there, then we will turn our capital to other markets. And that's the great privilege of being a globally present developer. There's also competition, not just in oil companies coming in, taking seabed rights, but they're also taking many of the executives that work in Austed. And there's been quite a churn in mm. Austed in the leadership ranks. How are you dealing with the talent pool issue? Well, in general, we as an industry, we need to ensure that we continue to build not just strong executives, but really, really strong talent. Because right now, I think there are 12 million people employed in renewables around the world in eight years. 
there's going to be uh, 38 million, that's projection. So in general, we in the industry need to take a huge responsibility for educating, retraining, lots of workforce. Austin, as I'm sure you know, we are twice as big as the second biggest in offshore. We've been in this for longest. So we have a deep capability at all levels in the organization. That means our, our employees are attractive. I, I obviously don't like it because I would love to keep our people. But on the other hand, I know they're great people with good values. So if they can get into another company and help them accelerate, again, as a world citizen, I love that. You've been in the offshore industry the longest. New players are coming left, right and center. Why is it so easy for them to come in and eat your lunch? I'm not sure it is as easy as it sounds. Because if you look at who actually builds something at scale, there aren't that many of us. If you look at how many people are bidding in, if you look at how many people saying they have offshore ambitions, there are a lot. But if you look at how many people actually have operational or under construction assets at scale, there aren't that many. So I think we will see an industry which will also sort of mature and saying some of those who came in found out it wasn't exactly as easy. And I greatly respect competitors and I'll call them industry colleagues who come in, who are serious, <clears throat> who know what they're doing. They want to do it in the right way, both from a sustainability and a financial point of view, and they stay in the industry. But those who come in, try to make a big buck, develop a product and sell it again, it's okay if they don't stay for the long term. Thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. My pleasure. I'm sorry about my sore throat. The story of Orsted's transformation from a fossil fuel company to a clean energy company was anything but straight up corporate strategy. It also needed state intervention and happy accidents. Lots of fossil fuel companies will have to undergo a similar transition over the coming decades if we are to reach zero emissions. We cannot rely on happy accidents alone. And just a side note, the research for this telling of the Orsted story is based on work I did for my book on climate solutions that will be published later this year. I hope you'll give that a read when it's out. Thanks for listening to Zero. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Send it to a friend or whisper it into the wind. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you just want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks to Kira Bindram and to energy reporter Will Mathis. If you'd like to read more stories from him about the state of the wind industry, we've linked some of those in the show notes. I'm Akshat Rati, back next week.